You're listening to the Journey On Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick is a horseman, trainer, international clinician, and author who helps empower horse people from all over the world with the skills, knowledge, and mindsets needed to create trusting partnerships with their horses. Warwick offers a free seven-day trial to his comprehensive online video library that includes hundreds of full-length training videos and several home study courses at videos.warwickshiller.com. G'day everyone, welcome back to the Journey On Podcast. I'm your host Warwick Schiller and my guest today is a lady named Jennifer Garland and like a number of my uh, previous guests on the podcast, Jennifer is an equine-assisted therapist, and like the rest of those people, she has a, an amazing story about how she got to that point. She says at the tender age of 48, a horse named Sonny walked into her life and uh, changed it forever, and she says it's a story about awakening, transformation, and courage, and it's a story about resilience. Jennifer had uh, very little horse experience prior to that. She was a city girl, married mother of two daughters and had 25 years of corporate experience in communications, community investment and change management. But in 2014, she left a 14-year contract and uh, a comfortable life to launch the main intent, an equine-assisted learning business. And so this whole chat is the story of how all that came about, as well as some other things, she has an amazing story in there about a father too who was a, a Spitfire pilot in World War II and that that in itself is an amazing story. But yeah, I'm so happy to have a chat with Jennifer and hear her whole story and I'm, I'm sure you guys will enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Jennifer Garland, welcome to the Journey on Podcast. Hey, it's great to be here. Hey, I'm glad to have you here. I'm glad to... It's going to be good to have you here and unravel your story and how you got to be doing the amazing work that you're currently doing. So why don't you um, share with our listeners what exactly it is you currently do, and then we're going to backtrack and figure out how you got there. Sure. Okay. Uh, I am currently a registered psychotherapist. I have a private practice um, called The Main Intent, and we offer... uh, um, psychotherapy, both virtually and in person. And then we also offer uh, equine-assisted psychotherapy. And I do a lot of group work as well here at a beautiful farm just east of Peterborough, Ontario. Okay. So if you guys are not familiar with Canada, that's like two-thirds of the way across Canada because all the provinces kind of run north and south like an oblong sort of thing. So you're like two-thirds of the way across there, aren't you? Yeah, I kind of tell people, most people know where Toronto is, which is, um, you know, the capital of Ontario, or maybe it's not the capital of Ontario. But anyway, Toronto, we're 90 minutes from Toronto. Okay. So if you guys don't know what's in Toronto, that's where Niagara Falls is, isn't it? (laughs) Niagara Falls is probably two hours um, on the other side of Toronto. Oh, really? Well, I know I was staying in Toronto and I went to Niagara Falls and I thought it was just like next door. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what most people do. I mean, it's definitely a tourist attraction for sure. Yeah. yeah. And I got to see it from the good side, from the Canadian side, not from the American side. Yeah. Great. Well, I think a lot of people don't know there's two views of the green, of the Niagara Falls and the Canadians get the great view and the Americans don't get the good view at all. Yeah, I can only, I've only seen it from the Canadian side. Mm-hmm. Mm. Very cool. So did you grow up in Canada? I did. 
Yep. I was um, born in Toronto and I am number five of six children. Um, so yes, I grew up in Canada and mostly in Ontario. Well, in Ontario as well. Okay. What, uh, what did your parents do? Just offhand? My dad, actually, my dad had quite a story. So my dad was a, um, he wore different hats, but I would say he was an executive level individual. Um, he was a veteran of the Second World War. And um, during his war experience was actually shot down and captured and managed to escape. Um, after the the war, he uh, went on to university to get a degree in engineering and then went to Harvard to get an MBA. So he worked in government. Um, he also worked in industry. And then um, his final sort of official role was as a college president. Um, he's no longer with us now. He died some time ago. And my mom was a stay-at-home mom. That little speech you just gave about your dad, that was very quick. And I wanted to stop <laughs> <laughs> like now. Yeah, now. Tell me more about that. So he was so he was a was he a pilot or a gunner or something? Yeah, he flew a Spitfire. Really? He was a Spitfire pilot. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So and young guy from St. Catharines, Ontario. Um Flew a Spitfire, and on one of his sort of near the it was near the end of the war, actually, um, on one of his uh, assignments, he was shot down by the Germans and had to use a parachute to get out of his plane. And when he landed, he was surrounded and uh, ended up getting captured. And you said he escaped? And then he eventually escaped, yes. It was during the time when the Allies were, um, I think they were in France. They were, and it was, at, it was near the end of the war. I don't have all the details in my brain, but it was near the end of the war. And um, um, while they were marching, so they would, basically what they had them do is um, the prisoners were, moved on ammunition trucks. And so, um, you know, if anything happened, they would be the targets of the allies. And um, oh, okay, yeah. and they did a lot of walking. He wasn't a big fan of walking after the war. Um, and when he escaped, did he stay escaped? He did, actually. He managed to find his way back to friendly territory and, um, and then... Um, eventually found flew back home for um, a period of convalescence. But once you've been a prisoner of war, you actually can't go back into the war in case they capture you again. Well, that's another one of those rules like the one in um, Saving Private Ryan that if, you know, if, if two people from the same family get killed or something or other, the, any other ones in, the, in the, the war, they go and find them and take them home, or maybe it's three, but... So you can't go back again after you've been a POW. Wow, that's interesting. I did not know that. I wonder mm -hmm. if that's a, just a Canadian thing or if that's a pretty standard thing. I would not know. I don't, I don't know the details. Mm. Yeah. And so then he's done all that and then he goes to, what did you say, he went to Harvard? He, well, he initially went to Queen's University um, for engineering and then um, just, before he, just before he went off to war he met my mom and they um married when he came back and um then he went to university they he was part of a group a class called 
48 and a half, and uh, many of his classmates were also war veterans um, and graduated uh, with a degree in engineering. And then I think he worked for a few years and then went back to school to get his MBA at, um, at Harvard. Yes. Wow. And it's in- and we're going to get to more of your story later on, but it's interesting that you ended up working with uh, veterans. Was there, do you think there was a part of your dad's story in that, or that's just kind of how it worked out that you, you know, you work in equine assisted therapy, you're going to work with veterans? Um, no, actually, I don't think there was, I would say, it's funny, because when I initially went into this work, I didn't want to work with um, men with PTSD. And, mm. and that's actually what came to me initially. Um, I, I think my, you know, if I were to reflect on my own childhood, I personally believe my dad had untreated PTSD. And while he was very successful, he, um, um, he could also be a little volatile. Right. Yeah, I mean, but they didn't treat anybody for PTSD back then, did no. they? I mean, basically, I don't think it was well understood. Yeah. 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 I mean, I can't imagine going through any theater of conflict like that and not having PTSD, let alone being shot down and, and captured be a POW, have to march, you know, forced march is the whole thing, and then escape. Like, wow. Yeah, it's quite a story. <laughs> and, you know, the interesting thing, like many <sighs> veterans, I didn't know his story until he was um, at an 80th birthday party. We presented him with, so when he came back from um, from serving, there were, um, there were telegrams back and forth between um, the official, the war officials and his mom when he went missing, obviously. And then there were telegraphs saying that he had been, I think he was missing for two or three weeks. And then there were telegraphs when he had been found. And then there was, you know, the news coverage of his return to, he was from St. Catharines, which is actually just outside of Niagara Falls. And, um, and so, so what I did for his 80th birthday was actually frame all that up for him. And um, that was the first time he really shared his story with his grandchildren. So it wasn't something he really talked about. And the only other time I really heard him talk about was when he was the president of uh, Durham College. I was actually a student and they had a Remembrance Day service and I heard him speak as the president um, about his war service. So it was kind of the first time I'd heard him share his story. So it wasn't something that he uh, openly talked about. And it was something that many people didn't openly talk about. Right. Yeah, I've, I've heard that. Um, how did that, how did him sharing his story hit you? Was it, uh, you know, was it quite a lot to take in or was it like, okay, that's what dad did when he was younger? I think, I mean, I think his story is quite a story. It, and mm. it, <laughs> um, and, you know, hearing him talk about the loss of friends that went to war with him was very moving. Um, and so it did um, p- create an opportunity for me to see him in a different light and to mm. have some empathy for the experiences that he had experienced. Mm-hmm. You know, I just had, um, 
a couple of people staying here for the last couple of days, hanging out. One of them was a, a former podcast guest, Barbara Schulte. And um, we were talking about understanding trauma. And it really, you know, it really helps you. And I was saying it really helps me deal with people who might be being a bit of a jerk. And you can, you can see underneath the behavior and see, you know, you can get an inkling of where the behavior is coming from. And so instead of, you know, feeling negative emotions towards them for being that, for acting that way, you kind of feel empathy for them because they ended up that way. Did you, you know, you said your dad could be kind of volatile. Did, did that kind of, was that like one of those things when you heard those stories, did that kind of shift you like, Oh, and you kind of maybe felt bad, like I've been judging him poorly for some of these things he's done, and now I understand where they come from. Did that happen for you? I would say absolutely, yeah. And I, I think also, um, as my dad got older, he, um, he ultimately died from Alzheimer's, and so you know, there's, um, there was a period of time where, um, really, diff- he had difficulty controlling his emotions, and so you know, he was, he was very vulnerable and that created, you know, um, it just, it just made, you know, made me much more empathetic to his situation, but also just seeing him as, um, you know, there's that shift that happens when you move from being the child to the caretaker. Mm. And and that's a huge shift Mm. as well that occurs. And it was, I was very, you know, I wasn't, I can't say I was close to my dad, as a youngster. Um, but as I became an adult, obviously I became much more sensitive to his experiences and how those experiences might've shaped the way that he behaved. And, you know, he was ultimately a very, um, he had a great sense of humor, had a sense of fun. Um, but I'm sure there were some, you know, ghosts in the closet as well in terms of, um, his ability to, to roll with the stresses that were pre- present in his life. You mentioned that he he got to where he you know couldn't really control his emotions. Do you think that was f- to do with the Alzheimer's? And my question about that was, you know, I mean, obviously he had to mask a lot of stuff that was inside him after he came back from the war. Do you think the Alzheimer's basically got him to forget? to hide his feelings from people? is you think that's what it was? It's hard to say. I think that might have been part of it. Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah. He, he couldn't, he couldn't, he couldn't mask it. It was there. So there was, you mm. know, um, you know, as an example, in one of his uh, later birthdays, we gifted him with a brick from overseas and, um, it was part of a memorial wall, and when we gifted him the brick, he, you know, he was moved to tears. Like it just, there was no ability to kind of control how he was feeling. Um, mm. And it was, you know, it, 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 you just sort of learn to accept that that's where he's at. You know, that's, you know, we're human beings having, having experience, and and that was that was his experience. It was actually really hard to watch and witness um, his experience with Alzheimer's. Mm. He's a very accomplished individual, and um, in some ways the experience was very dehumanizing. 
Mm, so it got pretty bad towards the end. You know, it's it's such an interesting thing. Like in that case, it, you know, it's a negative, but Robin's mum, my wife's mum passed away almost a year ago. Um, probably a week from now, two, a week and a few days from now will be the first anniversary. And she, had, you know, she died after a short bout with pancreatic cancer, which, you know, is pretty quick. But she had been struggling with, uh, you know, Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's dementia sort of thing for a number of years. And she wasn't, um, you know, she wasn't really bad, but, you know, she, you had a lot of the same conversations and, you know, five minutes after you answered a question, she asked the same question sort of thing. But it became a blessing when she got cancer because I remember she went for a, oh, she went to the doctor for something to do with her cancer one day and she came home and as, well, you know, Robin was tucking her into bed, she looked at Robin and she said, I've just been to the doctor. I think I, I must have a virus. You know what I mean? She didn't know she had yeah. cancer, even, you know, up to the very end. So it was, kind, you know, it was kind of a blessing then. So sometimes it can be a curse and sometimes it can be a blessing. Yeah, know? yeah. Um, yeah, you sound, your dad sounds like he must have been a pretty amazing human. He was pretty amazing, yeah. <laughs> he was also the father of six kids and yeah. lots of grandchildren the- and... And, yeah, the sort of person that yeah. they make a movie about, or write a book about. <laughs> well, it's, book you know, it's, it's movie, kind of interesting because when he did, when he passed, the Globe and Mail did do a story on his, did do a story on his, um, on his life. Mm. Oh, I bet that was interesting to read. So he was a big influence for me, definitely. Yeah, I, I, I bet. So you were uh, when you went to. school, when, when you went to college, what did you, what did you, what did you, what were you, what were you going to be? What was your life path like after school, after high school, you know? Yeah, well, it's kind of interesting because when I graduated from high school, I really had no clue what I wanted to do. And I would say that my self-esteem was pretty low. And at that point in time, um, uh, that's when my dad was the president of Durham College. And he said, well, why don't you take the dental hygiene program. That's a good program. And uh, so I signed up for the dental hygiene program. And then I went to an orientation. And when I walked in the room, I saw all these teeth sitting on tables. And I went, there is no way I can do this for the rest of my life. Not that I have anything against, you know, dental hygienists, but it was like, well, this is just not, this is not me. So I went Mm -hmm. home and had a had a bit of a crisis because it was like, okay, now what am I going to do? And um, met with a career counselor at the college and he said, well, what do you like to do? And I said, I like writing. And he suggested I take a course in, it was actually sort of, it was um, public relations. The first year was public relations, advertising and journalism. And then the second year you picked, you know, what your area of interest was. So I ended up taking a a diploma program in public relations, and then um, did really well, um, surprised myself in terms of my um, academic performance. And because of that, uh, went on to uh, Trent University and took a degree in politics and business administration. So that was sort of my original sort of focus. 
you you said you surprised yourself with your academic prowess. Were you were you not um, like in high school? Were you not academically inclined? And the reason I'm asking that is because I was, you know, I've always had the the whole uh, you know lack of self esteem thing, and you know you end up with all these stories you tell yourself about yourself. Yeah, <laughs> and so that that must have been good, like. To have that actual, that feeling of oh, I can actually do something. Because if you're always telling yourself what a piece of crap you are, um, and then you you do something that you can find a kind of feel proud of, you get to like be a, be a cheerleader for yourself for a bit. Yeah, and that's kind of what I. It was it was like it was a pleasant surprise. Um, in high school, I took, so I have a, a younger brother who's an accountant and I have an older brother who's an engineer. And then my, um, so there's, I think I mentioned there's six in the family. And then my, uh, one of my sisters, so there's three older sisters um, and there's 17 years between the oldest and the youngest. So I was kind of at the tail end of a family of high achievers um, mm. and and in high school, I took a lot of maths and sciences, and that's not my bench strength. My bench strength is arts and writing. And so, um, yes. Well, right brain and left brain? Pretty much, yeah. yeah. And, um, and so, yeah, it was, it was a nice feeling to know that I was quite capable of that's Did you have, yeah, like growing up, did you have the um, – you know, the, the kind of feeling of not being enough because you had all these high-achieving brothers and sisters. Is that part of that? Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Just this pressure to achieve. And, mm. um, and, and I, and there was, I, you know, I think there was a, I was, I think there was a perception that I was not likely to amount to what I've amounted to. <laughs> Was that was that outside perception? Or was that yours? I think it was a combination of both. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so what did you do with this political? What was it? Uh, so I got and- a degree in poli sci, political science, and business and men. So then I um, I worked at a number of small uh, advertising agencies initially after school. Um, I ended up. Uh, working for a public relations firm called Hill and Knowlton and was there for a couple of years. Um, my clients included Pepsi and Quaker Oats and all sorts of sort of high brands. So what do you, what do, you do in a public relations firm? Like what do you do for someone like Pepsi or Quaker Oats or whatever? What are they wanting you to provide for them? Oh, so at that time, you know, Pepsi was into all sorts of um, – you know, the Michael Jackson commercial and um, a number of high profile sponsorships. So we would do all the PR around that in terms of media releases and getting media coverage. I did a lot of events, um, you know, special events, black ties, um, all that type of fun stuff. And you did that for several years. What came after that? Uh, after that, I actually worked at um, Canada's largest hard goods retailer. Uh, I was hired to launch their um, community investment program. And I 
launched at that time, it was called the Child Protection Foundation. And part of my role was traveling across the country to convince their associate dealers that it was a good idea to invest in this community investment program. And, um, and I was there for seven years. That almost sounds like you're like it's the morphing stage between your old life and your new life sort of thing. Like now you, <laughs> you know, you're not trying to talk people into selling stuff or whatever. Now you are more into the humanity side of the whole thing. Would you, would you agree with that? Like I think the, that's the beginning of the I, beginning. I think that's a really good insight. Actually. I think it, it was actually for a whole bunch of reasons. It was the beginning of the beginning. So I would mm-hmm. say that role, um, that rule, that role really gave me uh, a sense of purpose. Um, I, I would, you know, in, in reflecting on it, I probably invested too much in the role. There was probably a little too much of myself invested in it. Um, but it did certainly sort of start to, um, it really fed this idea of having a sense of purpose and, um, you know, value of community investments. So, you know, we had several programs that um, were part of that. One of them was a program called Learn Not to Burn. So I negotiated an agreement with the National Fire Protection Association in the U.S. um, to bring Learn Not to Burn to schools all across Canada. And that was um, sort of one of my achievements when I was there. Um, and what is learn not to burn? What so it was a, I mean, this was, this was many years ago, but it was a, um, it was a uh, education program on fire safety. So Sparky the fire dog is their mascot. You know, we had Sparky days at the uh, local stores, um, and uh, and the curriculum itself was basically lesson plans that tied in fire safety and protection into the classroom. So you had Sparky the dog. You didn't have Smokey the bear. <laughs> no, yeah, no, it was Sparky. <laughs> Smokey the I'm bear. I'm sure you've American? seen Sparky the dog. Sparky is American. He was he's, he? he was an American mascot. He's still around. I see him occasionally. Oh, okay. Yeah, I've not ever heard of Sparky the dog. I've just heard of Smokey the bear. <laughs> So, so uh, okay, yeah, I suppose yeah. Smokey the Bear was more forest services, like you know, only you can prevent forest fires, sort of thing. Right. Yeah. No, this is more like uh, stop, drop, and roll. Learn not to burn. You know, those kinds of. Oh, okay. Sorry. So, learn not to get burnt. Basically, <laughs> I was thinking learn not to burn, as in learn not to set fire to things. Right. No, yeah. More how to handle yourself in dangerous situations. It, okay. Yeah. And you were there for seven years. I was there for seven years. Um, when I left, I was the director of public relations. Okay. Uh, and when, what year was that that you left? Uh, I think I was 33 when I left. By then I had two and kids. What? I was married. <laughs> and what year was that? Do you remember? Uh, what year was it? I don't remember. I'd have to do the math. The only reason I'm asking that is because I have in my notes here that at 2011, I suppose it was much later because it says in 2011 at age 48, you basically met a horse that changed your life. But I was thinking that comes next. But if you were 30-something or other, that's... Oh, no, the horse is like 
almost okay. a long time. I'm skipping ahead. Okay, so what <laughs> happens after We can go there, though. You... Oh, we're going to get there. Don't worry. That's where I want to get to. I'm just trying to get some preamble leading up to it. What? So what did you do after that? Um. Well, actually, I was restructured out of the organization, um, and it was a huge does hit. That mean, does that mean fired? Yeah, I got fired. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it was a, it was a huge hit to my ego. Um, it was, uh, it, so I kind of, I went from there to being a VP at an agency that was a terrible fit. Um, it was the way I kind of frame it, or I look at it now, it was the beginning of a series of unfortunate events. Um, and looking back though, were they unfortunate events or were they the fortunate events that led you on the path you're now on? Oh, they were the fortunate events. Totally. <laughs> so Absolutely. Make sure you, Absolutely. You gotta, but if you'd asked me at that time, I would have said there might have been a much easier path to get me here. <laughs> oh, yeah, most certainly. Yeah. Um, but the reason I pointed that out is because there could be someone listening to this podcast right now who is going through a series of unfortunate events and what yeah. they don't possibly know yet that in 10 years' time they're going to look back and go, wow, I'm so glad that happened. Have you ever heard of a you're – a, you're in the therapy world. you ever heard of a guy named uh, Peter Crone? Uh, he calls himself the mind architect. He um, – you know, he's a – I don't know if he's a therapist, but, he, you know, he helps people with – Anyway, there was a, a meme that I saw he put up the other day that I just I shared actually a minute ago before we started on on here, and I want to tell you now. It says, if you're not getting your personal wants met, then take a step back and consider there just might be a higher intelligence taking care of outcomes that are that are objectively a far better for your evolution. Yeah, I'm going to read that one again. I would agree. If you're not, if you're not getting your personal wants, then perhaps take a step back and consider there might just be a higher intelligence taking care of outcomes that objectively are far better for your evolution. That's like, that's the stuff right there, isn't it? Like, you know, that <laughs> completely can change your outlook on when things are not going the way you want them to go. Yeah. You've got to consider maybe they're not supposed to go the way I want them to go. Yeah. Because that's not for my evolution, you know. Yeah, I would say that's very true. Now that you can, now that I'm in a place where I can look back, but yeah, well, that's you know, but I mean, the reason I have really interesting people like you on the podcast is to share not only the highs but the lows, and to help people understand that you know, a lot of times those lows are you could you couldn't have got to where you got to wherever you are now if you hadn't had those, and it, I think it just helps sometimes helps people you know, shoulder the burdens that are upon them at the moment because, you know, if you can – it's whatever's happening to you is still happening to you, but if you can have a different perspective about what's happening to you, it totally changes really what's happening to you. I think that's very true. I mean, attitude is everything. Um, mm. I think at that time I was just so wrapped up in ego, it didn't really matter <laughs> what – well, let's let's talk about that because you've gone so far. You've gone from someone with no self confidence to this whole ego thing. So, tell me about that. Do we you you know you're being really successful at that job, and you kind of got yeah. to where yeah, I'm rocking this, and I know what I'm doing, sort of thing. Is that yeah. how that was going? Yeah, 
Yeah, I would say I I was I was very successful. Um and um I just, you know, it's funny when I look when I look back on it though, like just, you know, given what you've just said, there really was it was just like a series of it was like a really slow fall. Mm. You know, like you know you're falling, but you really can't can't control the outcome that you just have to it just it cuz it really be it really was the beginning of a series of events. Um I would say there was like a 5 year period where it happened. <laughs> you know. And I I just couldn't seem to find my footing. It, um mm. mind you I also had at the time I had I had young children at home and there was a lot of there's just there was just a lot happening. And that that's a lot. Having young children at home is a lot if nothing else is going on. Yeah. You know what I mean? So yeah. if there's a lot going on. Yeah. Yeah. I had a I had a two and a four year old at home at that time. Oh, wow. Yeah. So should I continue? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you get you get fired, and, and you know so, these so, unfor- uh, this series of unfortunate events that turn out to be fortunate start to happen. Yeah, you get fired, yeah. and then you start working for a company that is not a good fit. Yep, and then I was there, so I was only there six months, and then I actually, so then I got fired again. Um, and oh, so now you're feeling really good about the things. I was feeling pretty just <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> And, um, and actually a friend, this was a horse story here. Cause a friend invited me to go on a trip with her. Um, she was doing a business trip to Arizona and I was doing the, the leisure part of the trip. I needed to, I needed a break. So, um, it was a dude ranch. It was Merv Griffin's dude ranch in Arizona. And I had, um, I spent the week riding horses um, and when I came home from there, I decided I was going to launch my own business. Um, and I did, I, I launched the cactus group, which was a, um, management consulting communications, change management, all those things, um, consulting firm. So I did that. And then I, my first sort of client was a management consulting firm that focused on change management and their biggest client was this previous employer that I had um the retailer and um I ended up getting hired there for 2 years and worked Can we take a can we take a pause for a second? Sure. Um because a lot of times when people talk business speak it's like talking Afghani or something. I mean, so what is change management? What is so change management essentially is it's, you know, it's interesting because it's like, it's like a corporate version of therapy Mm. are walking people through organizational change and a change could be the adoption of new technology. It could be, you know, the adoption of new ways. It would just think of it in terms of the adoption of new ways of working that reflect the need to do something differently. And so my role is to provide, you know, the communications, the marketing around that so that people are willing to move from one place to another. That's essentially what it is. Okay. Um, you know, the, one of the biggest 
things that people really reject is change. Yes. So you kind of get to walk them through. Corporate change. Um, Mm -hmm. So I was working 60 hours a week there. It was just unsustainable. Uh, And I found myself. With two small children? With two small children and found Mm. myself in my doctor's office complaining of body aches. And um, Mm. after several tests, he said, I think you're depressed. And um, went through a period of depression, and that was a bit of a a wake up call for me. Um, so, can I ask what sort of symptoms you? Have? I mean, there's such a range of symptoms. Sure. With depression. What did you have? I just had major body pain. Um, I hurt everywhere, and, and that's a symptom of depression. Yes, because I was suppressing my feelings. Yeah, so it's so it's a psychosomatic thing, is what it is. Totally. Ah, and, it's like fibromyalgia. Very much like that. Yeah. Mm, okay, Fatigue, okay. you know, achy muscles. Just felt like you were. It would just felt like I w- every day was a slog. You know, just mm. couldn't get. Yeah, really had to force myself to get out of bed and go to work. Mm, okay, interesting. Please continue. So the next thing that happened was the um, the woman who was our nanny who'd been with me for um, eight years and had really been a significant support for us died suddenly. Um, she was diagnosed. She called in sick on a Monday and was sick the following month or had died the following Monday of hepatitis. And, um, and that was just a, uh, um, a huge, huge loss. Um, and she was also my, you know, she was, she was instrumental in enabling me to go out and do the work that I did. Um, and so that kind of threw me into a bit of a tailspin in terms of just, uh, we went through a series of people looking after the kids and, um, Concurrent with that, we had purchased a property outside of Toronto at that point in time. Um, my husband, Chris, and I, I should mention him. And, um, and uh, we had the property had been, we had had possession of the property for six months. And, um, and I reached, I, you know, we, we were, I just, let's just say all of these events sort of, uh, created a scenario where I was open to moving out of the city and sort of releasing myself of a lot of the, um, um, expectations or I don't know, whatever you want to call them attached to this idea of, you know, always go, go, go. I needed, I needed to spend some time focused with my kids and just, um, re evaluating all of the things that I thought were important at that point in time. So we did that. And it's funny how the universe works because we bought this house, um, which is not far from where we live now. Uh, we bought the house, uh, we were there for six months. We made the decision that we were going to move out of this city. A job came up. My husband's an engineer. The job came, a job came up in a community near here. And I said, well, what the hell? Why don't you apply? See if you get it. 
and he got it. And then we listed our house and it sold in two weeks. And so by that Christmas, we had moved to Keene, Ontario full time. And so we went from sort of a very busy neighborhood in Toronto to a community of 400 people. Um, and I continued, uh, basically continued doing my consulting work, but this enabled me to um, do it in a way that was much more flexible and gave me the freedom to look after the kids. I could walk them to school, you know, all of that sort of um, transpired. You were telecommuting before telecommuting was a thing? I, I was, yes, actually. <laughs> I was totally telecommuting. And now it's like, it's like a non, it's, it's like a no brainer, but yeah, it was, um, it was, that was the arrangement that I had. I actually picked up a big client at that point in time. And um, originally I was hired to help them find someone to be their communications person. And then they asked me to come on full time. And part of the arrangement was that I could continue working, um, working remotely. And then I would go into Toronto when I needed to go in. So it was, a, it was at that time, it was a 90 minute commute. Oh, wow. Okay. So that kind of brings you up to speed in terms of almost getting to the point where I got a horse. Um, Prior to okay, well, come on, let's let's do it. Let's get to this point. Something <laughs> happened in 2011 at age 48. What happened? At age 48, I had a beautiful Palomino named Sunny walk into my life. So, um, yeah, at that point, so my husband and I, by then, our kids had were kind of in the process of leaving the nest. Um, and my husband and I actually, instead of downsizing, we upsized and we bought an 82 acre farm. And I said to him one day, I think I'd like to get a horse. And he said, I think that's a great idea. And, or maybe he didn't say it quite so enthusiastically, but he said, <laughs> I think that's a good idea. And so I went on Kijiji and I bought this horse. And what is Kijiji? Kijiji. You don't know what Kijiji is? Kijiji mm. is like, oh, it's like an online, you buy everything online on Kijiji, right? It's, you know, you can buy okay. cars, so it's horses. Like, it's like Craigslist or something. It's like Craigslist. Yes. Totally like that. So uh, in America, that would be Craigslist. In Australia, you have a thing called Gumtree, and I'm not sure what you have in other parts of the world, but yeah, it's it's a place where people list things for sale. Okay. So you bought this horse off Kijiji. Yeah. So like, um, so for me, the path where the path went was this interest in horses. Um, I ended up taking the, um, Facilitated Equine Experiential Learning Certificate Program through Horse Spirit Connections north of uh, Toronto. And that particular program really is about relationship with the horses, and there is a spiritual Mm. element to it. And I had two experiences in that it was, it's a six month program, and I had two experiences as part of that that were really profound, that were, were eye opening. And when I initially sort of, I'm, you know, I will say I went into the program with a certain degree of skepticism because I'm still, I'm still, um, I would say at the beginning, you know, I'm still in the, in okay. the beginning stages. Yeah. Can I ask you what drew you to the program? 
Like, so there was a part of you that wasn't skeptical. What what part of you drew you to it? And then what part was the skeptical part? I think the part was just wanting, it, there was an interest in, in working with horses in a different way. So, um, and that might've been the beginning of, you know, the main intent. I, I didn't, didn't go into the program with the intent of launching the main intent, but um, my background, you know, the, my, the corporate background includes leadership development and, um, you know, executive coaching, you know, the, the business that I was in has kind of evolved over time with my experience. And, uh, what I can say is, you know, Sunny is very sensitive. And if I, at that time I was commuting, you know, back and forth to Toronto and that's a two hour, it's now two or three hour commute. And if I wasn't present, if I wasn't, um, you know, centered, all of those things, then it would be reflected in my experience with him. And it really, I mean, he, the way I sort of describe it is he really became my, my best coach. And so I think the field program, you know, it was one of, there's not a, at that time, there weren't a lot of, pro, there's not a lot of programs in Canada. And that was one of the few that was around. It was nearby. Um, and what was the name of this one again? Um, facilitated Equine Experiential Learning. Okay. It's called Feel. And Wendy Golding and uh, Andre uh, are the, were the, Wendy's since passed, but they, you know, that it was their program and it was informed by Epona Quest. So okay. Wendy okay. had taken her training from Linda Kahanov and the, the actual, I would say the structure of the program is very similar to Linda's because I've taken training okay. at both. So anyway. Yeah, you've been, it's, you've worked with Linda and also with Rebecca Bailey too, haven't you? Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Both podcast guests. Yes. I saw that. <laughs> yeah. So, and yeah. So, the, so that was the part that drew you to it. What was the skeptical part? Oh, um, I guess it was a part of me that thought it was crazy to work with horses in this way. Was it, a, you know, did you think it was a little bit too touchy-feely? You were yeah. looking more for something oh, yeah, a little totally. bit more practical? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's not who I was. Um, I was very professional and business-like. <laughs> that's not who you thought you were. <laughs> yes, yes. It's funny how life does that to you. So, yeah, it. yes. Oh, no, the experience totally opened me up. Um, and, you know, I'll give you an, I'll, I'll share an example of what one of the, the well, act, you, activities. You said there was two things. Two. There you were, said there was a couple of things. There were two, that? for sure. The first one. So there is an activity where you are invited to um uh there's there's a wand it's like it's like an activity around establishing boundaries and you use the wand to establish the boundary with the horse. So um that wasn't the activity though. But the wand was so so when Wendy was explaining this activity to us she, you know, had talked about that it, some clients wouldn't want to touch the wand and it was important to keep the wand because sometimes the horses would use the wand. Yeah. And I was like, nah, that, I don't believe that. That was my reaction. And I, and, sh and I questioned it and she's like, eh, well, you know, Wendy, Wendy was very, Wendy had her own journey. So, um, 
So we had this activity where I was working with a horse named Rosa and we had to randomly pick an emotion and we had to journal about it the night before and then go in and experience the emotion with the horse. And of course, the emotion that I picked was vulnerability randomly. And, um, and so when it was my turn and we, you know, we had other facilitators that were taking the training with me and it was my turn. And before you go, we went in, you know, the, the facilitator said, you know, how do you feel? And I'm like, oh, I feel fine. Everything's good. Meanwhile, Rose is taking a, a poop and, um, and then Rosa kind of positions herself right in front of all of the, you know, we're in a round pen and she's standing as close to the rest of the people as she could be. And so I get into the round pen with her and I'm standing next to her and I said to the facilitator, I don't think I can do this. I said, I can't be vulnerable. I can't be vulnerable in front of all these people. And she said, well, don't tell me, tell Rosa. And I looked at Rosa and I said, Rosa, I can't be vulnerable in front of all these people. And there was this wand leaning against the gate on the other side of the gate, if you get it. And outside the gate, outside the gate. And without sort of missing a beat, Rosa looks at me. She looks at all the people, the, you know, the group that's sitting there and she picks up the wand from the other side of the gate with her teeth and starts going like this to everyone that's back and forth to everyone, which is like, get out. And someone said, and that's exactly what someone said. What do you think that's about? And the, someone else said, I think Rose is telling us to get out so Jennifer can have her moment of vulnerability. Like it was just, and then I went, you know, then of course I was vulnerable because you can't, you know, vulnerability is one of those things that just kind of sneaks up on you, right? And that was, that was the first experience. Um, so I was like, oh yeah, there's something to this. <laughs> yeah. And would you mind sharing the second one? The second one was a little different. Um, they had this activity, um, and I will caveat this with saying I don't do this with my own clients. And we had options, but we had they had an activity where you were blindfolded and you were put bareback on a horse, and then the horse was just allowed to move um, at liberty. And... Um, as soon as I was blindfolded, I felt ill. I just felt really disoriented. And we did the activity. And um, when the activity was completed, I asked Wendy if I could give the horse a hug. And when I bent down to hug the horse, I started to sob. And I just lost it. Um, and it was unexpected. Um, I think it was latent grief and, um, it was just, it was a very, it was a healing moment, but it was really unexpected and, um, yeah. So it was sort of two, two experiences that were profound. Do you, do you have a sense of what the grief was about or was it just unprocessed grief in general? Um, I think part of it was about, I had lost my dad, um, a few years prior 
So it was definitely about that. Um, you, did you did you think do you think you grieved him at the time when when he passed? Uh, yeah, definitely grieved him at the time, but probably repressed some of it. You know, I I'm the yeah. type of person that you push me down, I just get back up again and keep going, and um, that's kind of what I did. And I would also say probably there was a bit of I think there was. There's always been a bit of grief around, I don't feel it as much anymore, but at that point in time, you know, part of my grief was not achieving, not having the level of achievement that I thought was part of the original plan, if that makes sense. You know, just letting go of your own expectations of what success is. And, um, like unfulfilled expectations. I know. Yeah, there was just a whole bunch of, there was a lot, and I don't know what it was, it was, you know, and actually there's a part of me that it, it might be better that I don't think it, I just allow myself to feel it. Mm. And so this exercise, what did the horse do when you were riding the horse? Did it just walk around? Stand it just kind of walked around. Okay, and how did you feel about being blindfolded? On a horse, because I'm I'm thinking that the the catalyst for maybe some of the grief moving through you might have been the 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 giving up control, like oh yeah, the, the, like having the trust to actually do it opens up a part of you a little bit. Maybe, maybe I found it very disorienting. Um, and as I said, I just there was a part of me that felt it just felt I felt a bit nauseous. I don't know how like to when you first said you felt ill. It. I wondered if you. I wondered if you felt ill, like, oh, my God, I'm about to get on a horse that's got nothing on it and I'm going to be blindfolded and bareback. And I wondered if it was that fear type um, ill or you actually, you know, it was like having an inner ear thing to where you're feeling a bit off kilter. Uh, probably a combination of both. I mean, it was a lot mm. of trust. It was, you know, yeah. putting a lot of trust in the horse and lack of control and not knowing what was going to unfold and how it was going to unfold. And, um, yeah. have you ever jumped out of a plane? No, but somebody else asked me that question recently. Because I have not. The, mo <laughs> the moment you know, you're going to jump out of a plane, you feel ill. I would imagine you, know you would, <laughs> you know, so I was wondering if it was that kind of ill feeling like, Oh my God, I'm going to get on a horse and I'm going to be blindfolded and, and yeah. the horse is out of control. Yeah. Probably a little bit of that, but it was also just mm. very disorienting. Like, an, it Before was more you, just like a nausea of just being dizzy. It just felt, I, I don't know, I don't know how to explain it other than it was just, it just made me, I, I didn't feel, it didn't feel natural. Right. Were you blindfolded before you got on the horse or you got on the horse and they blindfolded you? I think I was blindfolded before I got on the horse. I actually don't remember. I was just wondering if it was the movement of the horse that made you disoriented. Or it was, was the movement of the horse and being blindfolded. Yeah. I mean, I've ridden around and, and on horses and I just close my eyes and say, you know, what does this feel like? And it's pretty disorienting to close your eyes riding a horse. I've done that too, but that's different. Mm. That's different. Mm. This had just, there was a certain, I don't know, there was just something, there was, there was an, there was stuff attached to it. Mm. Wow. So I think there was a okay. lot there. Yep. So this was your skeptical thing you went to. And after these two experiences, you kind of were probably a little less skeptical, were you? Yes, Definitely. So I finished the program in, I guess, November that year. 
And a couple of things happened in January. So that was the year I turned 50. And um, six months prior to that, um, the place that I had a contract with, a 14-year contract with, there'd been a change of CEOs. And the new CEO was just a different personality. And um, I was organizing a big sales event for the company that was kind of like the launch event that happened in January. And I did the event. It was a big success, but I wasn't feeling the rah-rah. And that next day, that morning, I went into the paddock and, you know, kind of broke the cardinal rule, wasn't fully present, uh, was carrying all this stuff because there was a part of me that wanted to leave, but was struggling with the financial implications of leaving. And I went to take a blanket off one of the horses that was kind of lower on the, in the herd. And the lead mare came after me and she kicked me, um, not once, but twice. Um, she kicked me in the side of my thigh, which flipped me around and then gave me a nice kick in the ass. In fact, she's left me with a scar. And that Monday morning, I had an appointment booked with the CEO. Um, I left here at six and I was half an hour late. So that's how long my my commute was. I was, I didn't, it took me three and a half hours because of traffic. I was, the intent of the meeting was to talk about his vision, mission, and values for the organization. And I was sore. I was pissed off. I was not present and I was done. And so the way I kind of describe it is my dear Maggie gave me the kick in the ass that I needed to sort of make a change. And I resigned the next day. Literally and metaphorically. Yeah. Mm. So I sent him an email basically and said, I think I'm done. He gave me three months to change my mind. And I, um, I didn't, um, but I did work the three months. And then um, I kept the cactus group going even while I launched the main intent just because it was a source of income. And yeah. that May, I, I launched the main intent. We did, uh, it was actually the, the name of the business was the result of a family brainstorming session. And um, that September, I used some uh, inheritance that I had from my dad passing to build an arena. <clears throat> and then I had a grand opening in, um, November and then nothing happened for six months. <laughs> so, yeah, but that was the beginning of, that was the beginning of the main intent. The main intent that's, that was the, the result of a, family brainstorm meeting? Mm -hmm. Yes. We were driving back from, one of my kids was in university and we were driving back together from Ottawa and we were having a family brainstorming on what would we call mom's business? The, yeah. The family brainstorming. I remember I wrote a book that I, I mean, we, it was released last year, but we were trying to think of the subtitle for it. I remember I was in Maryland doing some clinics and Rob and I were driving along the road on the phone to my son in Hawaii, having this family brainstorming about 
what's the subtitle going to be, you know? And uh, yeah, I, I know what those family brainstorming meetings like. They're kind of cool. They are. It, it was a great way to, it was a great way to come up with it. Mm-hmm. So it says here in my notes <clears throat> that the main event is equine assisted leadership development and team building. Is that still the main? No, no. Uh, so that was the original intent. Um, and I think what I indicated is, so what came to me instead was trauma. So my first, um, and this was an interesting story as well. So I was actually, so in the following spring, I was at a neighbor's house who's an artist. Can I, sorry, can I just interrupt that? I wrote that sentence down in my notes. You, your intent was to have this equine assisted leadership and development team building. And you said, what came to me instead was trauma. Does that mean no? So, so it came to you as no, it's not about that. It's about trauma or actual trauma inflicted itself upon you. No, no. It was what came to me was individuals who were ah, okay, needing okay. to work yeah. through their trauma. Yeah. Yeah. So the original intent of the business was to be, was to do team building and leadership development. And that's not what came to the business. So my original business plan was all about that. What came what evolved was a business that really was more about helping people work through their trauma. Um, and so it's interesting because I was at a neighbor's house having a creative day and she's an artist and um, someone, a couple showed up to purchase a piece of her artwork and he was the clinical lead for a PTSD addiction treatment program in Toronto and happened to be looking for something to do in the area. They were bringing a group of um, sort of program graduates back, uh, sort of like a six-month check-in, and mm. um, were staying at a local resort and was looking for something to offer them. And I talked up the main intent, and that was my first group. Um, one of my first groups was a group of 13 men, in a PTSD addiction treatment program, and they were mostly veterans. Um, mm-hmm. And that evolved into a relationship that lasted three years, and they would bring a group out uh, once a month um, until um, that particular individual changed jobs and um, um, there was some, you know, some restructuring. So it hasn't continued, but that was that was the beginning. And that first group... Um, you know, I was so overwhelmed and so excited about having, you know, finally having a group that at the end of this session, I kind of blurted out, you know, my story just to sort of say I was just so grateful. And, um, and I, you know, talked about the fact that nothing had happened for six months. And, and one of the participants sort of said to me, you know, Jennifer, you can't force a goal. And uh, I think that was like, sort of the, some original wisdom that you just have to go with it. And then the other thing that happened was one of the participants that was here was doing art as part of his therapy. And three weeks later, I got a package in the mail and it was actually a painting of my barn that he had done. So it was just um, that experience and the experience of working. Again, I didn't think I would be working with men, but I love working with men. In fact, the irony is that most of my career I've been, I've worked with men. Like I've mostly been 
you know, either one, uh, you know, the only woman in the room or one of one or two, three women in the room. But most of the organizations that I've worked with, they've been very male oriented organizations. So, so that was kind of my first group of clients and working with those clients really opened me up to, um, this whole idea of working with trauma, um, and what trauma was all about. So the first thing I did was I took a training in, um, trauma counseling for frontline workers at the university of Toronto. And that was kind of like the, the beginning of the training, um, part of it. In my notes here, it said, you know, initially you worked mostly with veterans and first responders. Yeah. So that would have been the group. Those were the groups that were coming once a month. Then it said mostly men. Is there a, and you've since worked with a lot of women and different things too, with veterans and first responders who are mostly men, is there a common theme that runs through the whole thing? I don't know if I would limit the common theme to men. I think the common theme is, um, is around, um, you know, a lot of individuals who've experienced trauma, experienced hypervigilance. Right. So it's the mammalian nervous system's response yeah. to trauma, whether you're male or female. I think uh, so. What I, was, yeah. what I was kind of getting at there was with the men is, I was wondering if you'd noticed that, because society has cultured men to not necessarily show emotions, that it's working through the trauma is a bit different because that's not their go-to. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. 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 And, you know, it's interesting because I think, you know, the horses are wonderful in terms of inviting us to be authentic And what would happen over the course of the day is everyone would kind of show up, right? (laughs) And then there would be moments. What you guys can't see right now is Jennifer's like looking very stoic. Sorry. They would show, (laughs) you know, they'd show up with their stone face. And there would, you could see over the course of the day in the different activities, the unfolding like to me, that is the beauty of this work is that you get to witness this magical, and I, you know, at that time I would use the word, I still use the word magical because it can be magical, the unfolding that occurs because it's not expected. And so there are tears, there are moments of tears, there's moments of laughter, there's moments of insight, just it, and at the end of the day, they looked different. Oh yeah, it was it was powerful work. Mm. Um, and then you said that the management changed, and so that that um, didn't continue. What sorts of people did you start working with after that? Well, um, I went to. I actually attended a. This is a great story. So I attended a community investment seminar or workshop that was put on by our local community foundation around partnership and happened to be sitting at the same table as the executive director of the Kortha sexual assault center. And after the, and after the workshop, she said, we should do something together. And I said, that's a great idea. And, um, 
And then we had to find a researcher. We found uh, a researcher through our local university, Trent University, and we applied for funding through the Public Health Agency of Canada um, to do a um, equine-assisted learning program for young women 13 to 18 who had experienced interpersonal violence, um, and uh, it was called Building Internal Resilience Through Horses. So it ended up being a five-year journey together. Um, and they were, in my notes here, it says they were, it was a, a trauma and violence informed resilience program. Is that that program? Exactly. Yeah. Right. Um, and it says you were offered to young women 13 to 18. Now, there were, it says here there were three pillars. One was a sense of mastery. Yes. That you taught them. One was emotional regulation. And what was the third one? I didn't write it down. Healthy relationships. Okay. And, can you maybe explain a little bit, unravel what that sense of mastery actually means? What what what? So, exactly sense of mastery is really about building confidence um, in yourself, and um, you know, it's that whole idea of you believe you can, you will. Um, you had asked about a quote, for example, and that's really become my guiding quote. Well, where I heard it first was from one of the participants in the program. So that's really what a sense of mastery is about, is the uh, concept of just believing that you can and um, and having the confidence to follow through. That sounds easy. <laughs> but that, <laughs> it's not easy. When you say it quickly like that, and would you say, and I, you know, I don't know much about this, but... Um, These are people who've been in in violent households, violent relationships, um, that sort of thing. I imagine that self mastery thing. Do you do you feel like if you can change that perception, that they start to choose different relationships? Make different decisions. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you, you feel absolutely. that's a part of that? Because, yeah. you know, when I read that three pillars, I was thinking, well, which part of this would th – th there's there's one thing unraveling the trauma from things that happened, but where's the part that teaches them how to make better decisions to not get into those types of relationships in the first place? So that you think yeah. the self-mastery – the so yeah. mastery is a part of that. And I think it's important to clarify too, we didn't get into the details of their trauma. So right. that was okay. not the focus of the program. The focus was more around building life skills. So you had a, a rough idea what sort of situation they'd come from, but you did. it wasn't psychotherapy to where you're talking about. No, it was, then. this was an equine assisted learning program. Oh, and, this is an equine assisted learning. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yes. Mm, okay. And what was the third one? There was sense of mastery, emotional regulation. What was the third one? Um, improve interpersonal and relational skills, so healthy mm, relationships. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So including boundaries and… Yes. Boundaries were a big yeah. part. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, reading situations, body language, cues, social cues. Um, mm. Horses the whole idea of connection. That. What's that? It 
horses are masters at teaching that because that's their, you know, that's their primary method of communication. Absolutely. Yeah. And we had some pretty magical moments with those groups as well. Um, for example, I had a participant who um, wouldn't speak in group. And the only time mm. we heard her speak was when she was grooming her horse. And mm. she wore this cap, not unlike the cap that you're wearing. She had this cap that she had pulled down over her head. And when we did meet the herd, um, the horse that she connected with, the first thing he did, uh, his name is Prince Hari, was knock the cap off her head. It was right. just, you know, classic, classic. Just got her out and said, come out from under your shell. Pretty much. That's super cool. Yeah, it was, um, we had some really powerful sessions. And how is that for you? Like how, how is that for you um, with that? You know, like for me, like, like giving clinics and stuff, quite a bit of the time people have quite a transformational experience at a clinic, not because I'm trying to do econ-assisted therapy or anything, but in trying to resolve you know, some sort of problem they may be currently encountering with their horse, sometimes they have to change a bit about themselves. They may have to be better with boundaries. They may have to be able to give up control. That's a big one. Like a lot of times the problems they're having with their horses is the fact they can't give up control. Once they do, the problem goes away. <laughs> so the problem was not the horse. But right. um, it's... You know, so I get to see transformational stuff there. And my wife um, does a lot of, we both do ice baths, but she's been leading groups through ice baths. And I tell you what, that is, that is watching someone go from fear to strength, you know, from, yep. from, from almost abject terror, you can almost think about it. Some people get in an ice bath, their face looks – I mean, the look of some people's faces when they get in an ice bath. Just you, imagine. If you want to <laughs> duplicate that, you would have to be doing something pretty inhumane to them. Like, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then you see their face, like when my wife coaches them through it and gets them following their breath. And after about – so we do the ice baths for about two minutes, but after about 35, 40 seconds when all the chemicals hit kick in – and you see them go from terror to like confidence and like I can do hard things. As a matter of fact, I'm doing a hard thing. It's there is that's its own reward right there is is, is being a part of that. So did you find yeah. that with because when when you're dealing with young women from twelve uh, thirteen to eighteen who've you know been in violent situations, I'm sure there's some huge transformation that goes on and. and I was just wondering, how does that sit with you? Is it does it bring you up? Does it drag you down? Is it heavy for you? Is oh it, no, I is love the work that I do. I love it. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, so much of I think for you know, it's funny we started this conversation sort of talking about, um, you know, when you can, when you have the ability to look back now and and see the different experiences that you've had and how those experiences might support the work that you're doing presently. All of the experiences that I've had up until now really have helped me. Um, you know, that the, how do I, I mean, it's, it's opened me up in a way that I didn't expect. I would say that for sure. 
And, but it's all, you know, I've made me much more empathetic. Um, I think the paradigm shift that I really had to learn to um, navigate was this idea that I don't own the outcome. So when you're a consultant, you're problem solving and you're providing solutions and you're doing that a little bit, but you, you know, ultimately you have to trust the process with the horses. You have to trust your horses. You have to trust the client. You have to trust um, the environment. And even, you know, sometimes the weather is a factor in the work that you, when you're working outside and, you know, all of that was a huge paradigm shift for me in terms of this work. And, um, but I will say of the work itself, it, it, it motivates me. I really love the work that I do. And, um, it, it, I don't know how else to explain it, but I just, it gives me joy. It, you know, to be in a place and and I feel it's a huge privilege to be in a place where you can witness the unfolding of someone that their, their own sense of empowerment, um, seeing them come, you know, create the solutions that need to be created. Um, there's magic in groups. I love working with groups because I mean, now, you know, obviously I'm, I work with a lot of indigenous groups and, you know, we, we've had some magical, I've just had some incredible experiences that I, you know, if I weren't doing this work, I would not have had the opportunity to be a witness to. That was, that was almost going to be my next question. Um, Cause we've talked about the veterans, we've talked about the young women, but you had, I read in your CV that you've worked with a lot of indigenous groups. Can you tell me a bit more about that? So, um, so the work, a lot of the work that I'm doing now is I have a, um, there's a, they call it, it's a friendship center locally, but it's an indigenous group and, um, they, uh, bring groups out. So in the past year, for example, they, they have what is called the indigenous court system. And so part of their treatment is, or their, um, I'll I'll use the word treatment, part of their program is to uh, participate in a six-week equine-assisted psychotherapy group. And Mm -hmm. um, last year, we had a fathers and sons group. Uh, We had a male group, uh, so worked with women. And then we've had um, some young youth groups as well. Just, they're just youth groups. They're not part of the court system, but um, doing a lot of um, work with the Indigenous community. So, um, you know, what would be different? Well, the activities are all the same. Uh, we might open with, um, uh, smudge doing a smudge. So we incorporate some of those, yeah. you know, some of those practices into, I mean, a beautiful story actually is one of the groups that I worked with. So we used to have a horse named Samson who was a Belgium Clydesdale cross. And, um, died last year. Uh, he had a heart attack. He was 27. He had lived a good life and he'd been here for seven or eight years. And he died during this particular group. And, um, and one of the participants in the group was really connected with him. And so instead of like following the program, what we did was we had a grief ceremony for, um, Samson and that include doing a smudge and drumming and, you know, the tobacco. And it was just a really beautiful experience. 
you um, you mentioned a father and son. Oh, actually, I want to back up. So there, there's a there's an indigenous court system. So are the are they looking more in? You know, are they looking more at trying to solve the problem rather than incarcerate people for doing something. Is that what they're? Is that what yeah. they're doing? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And the the fathers and sons group were were um, what am I trying to ask here? Was, was it like the 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 was it from like uh, like do, domestic violence situations where there was violence in the home, and that's why the father and the son there. Why would they, why why would they have the father I and the son? Didn't there? Have, I didn't have. I I don't know all the details. What okay. I did know was that you know all of the the, the boys that were here were involved in the court system, and okay. I think all so of the boys the, were in the court system. All of the yeah, dads, okay. with with the exception of one, were also involved in the court system. Okay, and these and were I all that was. These were all seventeen-year-old youth. Mm. It was, that was a powerful. that was a tricky group. <laughs> yeah, well, you're not just dealing with the the one; you're dealing with the relationship between the yeah. Yeah, the the two of them, but I bet it was probably pretty powerful too, was it? It was very. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we again we had our moments. Mm. Um, have you done a lot of those, or was it was the father son one just a one off? That was the first father son group. I'm actually doing a mother daughter group this spring. Mm. So, um, we'll see how that. So that's been a two year relationship. Um, with the Friendship Center. And then I also um, I also host groups from the Canadian Mental Health Association, their justice program, which is somewhat similar. So again, um, programming with a focus on life skills and self-awareness and um, boundaries, all of those things. Sounds like how to get along with horses. <laughs> yeah. So is there anything, um, I mean, I know there's a, a lot. You you have got, <laughs> you've done a lot of study. So you've got a, a Master of Arts in Counseling Psychology. Um, you've done trauma counseling. You've got, oh, we mentioned it before, where you've worked with both Rebecca Bailey and, and um, Linda Karanoff. Uh, then you've done a natural life and ship trauma uh, equine-assisted therapy Thing? Yeah, that was just a that was the fundamentals course. Mm-hmm. Um, I did that at Horse Sense of the Carolinas. That was in so that was pre masters. Okay, so okay, that was a couple years ago. Yeah, I think Tim and Bettina do a great job with that stuff. Yeah, it was a really it was. I mean, all of these are. And then I've also worked with um, Equasoma. I did an again an introductory course. Was with that with Sarah? Sarah, yeah. So she's been on the podcast too. Yes. <laughs> you've been with all the podcast guests. Yeah. And then and then you've done a bit of Reiki stuff as well. Yeah, the Reiki, I've t- I have taken Reiki. I don't do a lot of Reiki myself, but I think for me the Reiki is more um I've also taken somatic experiencing and I, that has been really helpful in terms of the mind body connection right. around trauma and the Reiki was more energy, but it's not um 
Um, it's not my go-to. Um, my go-to is the somatic experiencing and polyvagal theory and nervous system activation, all of those lovely things. Right. All the good stuff right there. Don't you think that Reiki is, even if you didn't do it to anybody else, it's, it's good. It's, a, it's almost a somatic experience learning how to do it. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, there's an individual who's been my, he's been a bit of a mentor and he's a, a Reiki teacher. He's also, he's been my supervisor in my psycho, he's a psychotherapist as well. And he's been my supervisor. So that's uh, who I took the training with. But yeah, yeah, I did go back to school after 40 years and got my master's in counseling psychology. It was a good thing to do during the pandemic. Mm, and yeah. uh, had a chance to do my practicum at the local hospital, working with family and youth and the pediatric outpatient clinic. So got some experience working with kids that way. Wow. What's that? What is that like when you, I'm just trying to put myself in your shoes. So you, you know, you've got all the, you, so you study there, you know, you do that, counseling side psychology degree and then then you get to do the hands-on stuff what's is that a little overwhelming like i'm gonna get i I would feel like i gotta get this right sort of thing oh yeah for sure i mean you really Mm. do have to adopt the beginner's mind um and i think i mean it it's a different it's different going back to school at this stage in life versus when you're you know at after high school so to speak you're you know you're in a different place and you're I'd like to think I'm a little more mature. And um, I actually, again, I kind of like, I enjoyed it. So I was there from a place of curiosity and, um, and empathy. And, um, you know, I really enjoy hearing people at sort of the work that you do. I enjoy hearing people's stories. So part of the work was understanding people's stories and helping them overcome some of the you know, the things that they were working through. So I enjoyed it. I, I, um, very satisfying work. Yeah. And I imagine the other thing is, you know, like you said, when you first went to to college, you had no idea what you wanted to do at this point in time in life. You, you have a, you have a path that you're on and you have a vision of something or other and so instead of like, oh, you know, you're not studying something that I wonder if I've ever, I'll ever do anything with this. It's kind of like, this is what I want to do. I want to know more about it. So you, yeah. you come in with that enthusiasm and, and curiosity. Yeah. And actually the woman who was my supervisor at the hospital is also a horse person. And so we've now since become friends. Um, she actually did the, she did the training with Linda Kahanov with NI last year so she's now had some training in equine assisted psychotherapy and we're now doing workshops together so um it was um you know the horses were there they were part of it did you go to to arizona for that last year yep to linda's yeah that's very cool i you know i had linda on the podcast and then that's the only interaction i've had with her and then i she came to the to the podcast summit last year in San Antonio, Texas, and I got to, you know, share some time with her. And yeah, she was absolutely lovely. I, you know, I was, I don't know, I was a little bit intimidated by her, the fact that she was coming. Like, I'm, I'm, I've got the opinion, like she's a somebody and I'm a nobody. And, and, 
you know, the stupid story, stories you tell yourself. I was thinking that she was, you know, she was going to be above us peons or whatever and, uh, you know, it couldn't be further from the truth. She was really into what we, would, what we were doing there and, yeah, she was absolutely lovely. Yeah, yeah, it was fun. So what, uh, what's next for you guys? What are you, you, got any, you got anything new on the horizon or are you going to just keep, you've kind of found your niche, what you want to do and you're going to keep on doing it? I think I'm going to keep on doing it. Um, I will say one of the, you know, one of the things I'm mulling over right now is, um, I think I shared with you, we lost Sunny um, mm, just before Christmas and um was a big loss for me. And um, I'm mulling the idea of uh, creating a sunny day fund um, that will fund um, uh, groups of coming to the farm and maybe continue the work of building internal resilience to horses. So, so looking into that, but otherwise, you know, my intent is to continue doing the work that I'm doing and, um, building my private practice. I have a lot of individual clients now in, in addition to the, to the groups and um, just carrying on <laughs> with the beautiful herd that I have now. Yeah. Um, so I, unless I missed the email, but I don't think you chose any questions from the list of questions I sent out. Did you? Uh, I think I did. Um I know I you, gonna... you asked me about a quote um, and the quote. I, didn't, I, I just sent you a list of questions to choose from. But, but okay, so I'm just going to, I'm going to pull some random ones from that list out of my oh, head. Okay. Do you have, what is, what is your favorite book you recommend? So not necessarily the favorite book you've ever read, but the one that you recommend to people most, you, know, you meet people and you go, you need to read this book. Do you have a, a yeah, one of those sorts of um, books? It is, um, it's Gabor Mate's book, one of his recent books, The Myth, the Myth of, of Normal. Normal. Oh, yeah. my God. That is such Have you read a it? Good, yes. Oh, I love his writing. Oh, yeah, I love his writing too. But that book, you know, I've been down a bit of a rabbit hole, not that I've taken a psych degree or anything, but I've been down my own personal rabbit holes and reading stuff for quite a few years now and it was that book was almost like it was a compilation of all the stuff I've been interested in for quite a while yeah plus some more yeah you know what I mean was, yeah I, I I used to listen to it while I was running oh yeah and I'd be running along and my head would be bobbing I don't know if people thought I had something going on with my neck but I'd be jogging along listening to this thing and I'd be like oh yeah yes Matt Gabor that's the stuff right there yeah. love that yes. yeah yeah, I really appreciate how he combines research and data with stories. Very much in the in the way of like say Brene Brown or yeah Malcolm Gladwell, you know, like a doctor. I love Malcolm Gladwell's them. work too, and Brene yeah. Brown's. Yes, I've 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 got her book. Um, the other book is a recent book, the one where she writes about emotions. I can't think Atlas of any of the heart. Yes, that's a really mm. good. I use that as a reference all the time. Have you ever watched the TV show she did of that? No, I have not. Oh my goodness, it's so good for people to watch. So you guys listen at home if you haven't watched Brené Brown's Atlas of the Heart, um it was recorded in like a theater. So she did this presentation, but what she does, she, you know, in the book she talks about an emotion and then describes that emotion exactly and and says, "Now you might think 
when this happens, it's this emotion, but that's got a different name. And it really gets specific about what the different emotions are. But the great thing about the TV show is she will do that. She'll talk about an emotion and she'll say what it is and what it's not. And then she will show you a clip from a movie that you would have seen of an actor that you know portraying that exact emotion. Oh, interesting. And it's really like you're like, for me, it was really good. Like, oh, yes, I thought that emotion was um, maybe a broader band of stuff. But she's like it's very specific about it. But then she will show you a clip from a movie, like I said, a movie that you've seen. And you're like, oh, yeah, I remember when he said that. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, it's such, yeah, it's, I, I haven't read the book. We had the book sitting around. When we, we got the book when it first came out and I took one look at it and I'm like, that looks a bit dry for me. <laughs> describing emotions you know but the the tv show is um yeah well worth watching yeah i use it with clients when we're exploring different emotions Mm. i bet that's good um so another question that i you could have chosen (laughs) i'm gonna ask you (laughs) okay what do you do to recharge your batteries like do you have any like hobbies or anything outside of saving the world horses Honestly, I love to walk. Um, I, I, for me, recharging my batteries, I'm a gardener, love getting my mm. hands dirty. Um, I have um, about an acre of uh, perennials that I look, look after in the summertime, but I really just enjoy the, the animals on the farm. We've got mm. some goats and I just like to go out. You know, I know I started off talking about riding horses, but I really enjoy just going out and being with the horses and, um, um, we've got chickens and, um, I'm an outdoors person. So I, I really enjoy connecting in nature and, um, just being yeah, with the herd. You said you like gardening and stuff. You know, I read something a while ago that said this actually, there are, I don't know what they are, microbes or something, there's stuff in the soil that is actually good for depression. Ah. Like you're supposed to get your hands dirty. You're supposed oh, yeah. to get your hands in soil. There's, there's some sort of symbiotic relationship there between us and soil that's good for our mental health. Absolutely. I think anything out in nature is good for our mental health. Oh, yeah, um, most certainly. But this is an actual, you know, the, it, it's a, like it's some sort of something that you absorb through your skin that, yeah, you know, it's like nature's SSRI sort of thing. Which is pretty cool. Uh, do you have what about what other questions would have been really good for you? Uh, I have the questions well, here if you need them. <laughs> oh, do, well, yeah, do you see something that jumps out at you? You know, one of them would be, um, you know, tell us about a failure and how it's helped you. And we actually we had that conversation. Yeah, we kind of did. Yeah, yeah, yep. yep. Uh, what about a quote? Do you have a quote? Uh, um, do you have I a, think a quote one of the or quotes- a message. Um, I think, share. well, I think one of the messages for sure, believe you can and you will. I I don't know who to attribute that to. And then the other um, quote or the quote, one of the quotes that guides my work is courage. It's a, it's a partial quote. Um, courage is the most important of all virtues. It's Maya Angelou. I don't know if you're familiar with her work, but she's another fabulous writer. And yeah, I, I love think, isn't her poetry. A- isn't there a longer version of that? And that courage is the most important of the virtues because without that one, you cannot develop the others or something. Yes, like that's that, exactly the quote. Yep. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. I firmly believe that um, without courage, um, you really hard to accomplish anything. You really need courage to to exist in this world. <laughs> yeah, uh, Maya Angelou quotes uh, pop up from time to time on my Facebook because on my computer, do you know what a, a news feed blocker is? Yeah. Yeah. So I have a news feed blocker on the computer, so I can get on. I can get on Facebook and I can post stuff or whatever. And if I wanted to look someone up or a group up or whatever, I could get on that. But there is no news feed. Right. All you get on the screen is a, is a quote. <laughs> a lot of the times it's a uh, – I wouldn't say a lot of times, but Maya Angelou pops up there quite a bit. Yeah, I love her work. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Well, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. It's been such fun chatting with you and hearing you – not only the story of you, but the story of your dad. That's an amazing story as well. Well, it's really been um, an honor and um, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to have a chance to meet you and talk about my story. So thank yeah. you. Oh, you're, you're welcome. I love what you, uh, you're doing out there in the world. You guys, people like you are really making the world a better place. Thank you. So are you. So how, well, thank you. Um, how can people find out more about you? Tell us about your website, social media, all that sort of thing. Uh, social media, um, I am on Instagram and Facebook under the main intent or at the main intent. Um, and it's M-A-N-E-I-N-T-E-N-T, not main. Um, and um, my website is uh, www.themainintent.ca. .ca. Don't forget the CA. She's in Canada and it's not a .com, it's a .ca. .ca, yes. Perfect. Well, thanks again for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. And for you guys at home, thanks so much for joining us and we'll catch you again on the next episode of The Journey On Podcast. Thanks for being a part of The Journey On Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick has over 850 full-length training videos on his online video library at videos.warwickschiller.com. Be sure to follow Warwick on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram to see his latest training advice and insights.